Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hi, everybody. Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team. Joining me on this installment of the Cowan Energy Transition podcast is David Phillips, head of UK and investor relations at Ocker Carbon Capture. Ocker Carbon Capture, as the name suggests, is solely focused on carbon capture. The company uses their engineering expertise and unique amine sorbent technology to deliver carbon capture facilities and plans to offer carbon capture as a service. So, David, Thanks for joining us. Before we get into the discussion, could you give us a couple minutes on who you are and what your role is at Ocker Carbon? Sure. Uh, thanks, Mark, and uh, great to join you on this one. Um, so, yeah, my my role, uh, as, a, as you nicely phrased, head of the UK and head of investor relations. The UK side is the commercial side, so all about promoting our franchise in the UK. And as um, we'll probably discuss later on in the, in, the, in the list of questions, the UK is a very important market in Europe. A lot of big gas to power, as well as other uh, other industries to look at. So a very important part of our European uh, footprint. And the rest relations is, uh, is what it says, is dealing with that. Um, I think my, my background, I did work for Arca Solutions some years ago, between 2014 and 2016, when I was also in the IR side there. But most of my life, um, a, bit, a bit like you, has been on the sell side. So I spent a lot of time as an oil and gas guy, uh, mostly at HSBC in the UK, uh, and also a few years in New York. And I was head of research there for the last few years before I jumped back over the corporate fence to join Arca in uh, August last year. Fantastic. Really excited to have you. So Arca Carbon is a, a newer company, I guess, but not a new business uh, coming out of the, the broader Aqua organization in 2020. Can you briefly explain the background on the company, uh, the historical role in, in CCS, reasoning for listing, and, and kind of what the corporate structure uh, looks like currently? Because I think that it's a, a bit of an unusual um, setup for, for some investors. Mm, absolutely. No, great, great question to start with. So we, we often talk about ourselves as being the oldest kid in the kindergarten. So it's a, it's a new industry, but uh, we've been doing it for 15, 20 years. Now, as a public company, we've only been around since the middle of 2020. And that is part of uh, Arca Horizons. Uh, so Arca Horizons is the investment company in the Arca uh, industrial system. Um, Horizons own stakes in a number of companies in the uh, in the green and green and clean tech space, including ourselves, offshore wind, hydrogen, and so on. Um, so they own forty two percent of us, and uh, that's our link to the rest of the Arca ecosystem. Our our role, I, we really are. I say we've been doing it for for many decades, or at least two decades. We really reflect the fact that Norway has been on the front foot in terms of looking at decarbonisation for for some decades. So we benefited from a good government push to work with various uh, academic partners in the early two thousands. Actually, even before that, uh, Statoil, uh, using the old name deliberately, uh, the Arca Group was involved in the top size for the Sleipner field, which has been capturing CO2 and storing since 1996. Um, but we did a lot of work uh, historically. Um, I won't go through great detail now, but we did a lot of R&D around the solvent, a lot of R&D around the environmental footprint. I built a couple of plants already many years ago. We built a mobile test unit in 2008. We built the big test center in Mongstad in Norway, 80,000 tons a year in uh, 2012. Um, and since then, we've done a lot of engineering and, uh, um, and technology work to get where we are now. Um, the, the spin-off, just to, to finish the question, to finish your answer, the, the, the spin-off, as I mentioned, was mid-2020. Obviously, a very challenging time to, to do anything, given the middle of the, the first year of the pandemic. 
Um, but the real re reason was that there was a view from Arca that they could realize value by uh, separating the clean tech and the green areas away from Arca Solutions itself. And so far, that has uh, has been proven to be the, the right move. Mm -hmm. I think part of the, the listing and, and the opportunity uh, revolves around some specific policy support and initiatives uh, in, in Norway, uh, as well as in Norway generally. Can you briefly describe what's going on there and, and why Acker Carbon may have sort of a head start in, in winning this work? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned before, Norway has been uh, very much on the front foot in terms of developing carbon capture. And in this, uh, in this current uh, carbon capture cycle, um, it was Norway made some big moves to, to, to fund and to accelerate uh, the, a big industrial cluster called uh, Northern Lights. Um, and this uh, is aiming to start storing CO2 in 2024. And as part of that, uh, one of the main projects, one of the major projects for that is the, uh, is the Brevik CCS project, which is the Norsems uh, cement plant in Norway. So our, our appearance, if that's the right phrase to use, in the middle of 2020, was just ahead of um, contract awards for working with that. And that's uh, when it was awarded a 1.7 billion krona award for us. Um, project itself uh, has a fantastic ambition long-term. I mean, it's storing a, a few million tons per year um, starting 2024, it's then scaling up over multiple, um, uh, multiple uh, levels, and certainly has the ambition to be a, a hub that will take, in the long-term, will take CO2 from other parts, other emitters, both in Norway and, and potentially also, also in Europe. Okay, great. And and if I were to maybe just from a high level to try to kind of uh, for for people that might not be as intimately familiar, but if I were to sum up your capabilities around all this, it's it's around engineering carbon capture projects where you have prior experience, sort of sitting within the broader arc organization as we discussed. You've got this special aiming solvent um, that's got some competitive advantage around it. And then you've got these go-to-market offerings as it stands today um, with different sizes of carbon capture, right? You've got a, a big catch and you've got a just catch. Uh, and with the just catch uh, offering, you're trying to offer that as a service rather than a sale, sale of plan. Is that sort of a, a good overview? Would you, would you change anything with, with that description? No, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great um, top of the mountain summary. I think we could add a few little comments in that. Um, we, uh, your comment about engineering as well as the science is, is spot on because really we see ourselves as a technology and engineering company. And to be a player in carbon capture, which is all about chemical process engineering, uh, you have to have the science. So you have to be able to have a good view around what the actual material is, uh, what the solvent is, and what the chemistry is behind that, how efficient it is, how much CO2 can it capture, um, how can it scale up, very important. And of course, uh, the environmental footprint. You know, what does it do while it's been used? Does it, does it some of it escape or any side products and so on. So there's lots of uh, work around that. So we, we spent ooh, a good number of years working on that in the early 2000s. And, and that's, um, maybe we'll come on to this, but we certainly think the HSC side of our, of our science of the technology position is, uh, is very strong indeed and potentially market leading. The engineering side, um, super important because that's really what brings the cost down. And when we talk about, you know, how do you get a nice idea from the science lab to a pilot plant to a commercial plant to building something in Norway right now, which we are doing, that's the engineers. And that's the engineering skills to, to design something, to deliver it, to modularize it, to make it simpler, to modularize it again. And just as a soundbite, you mentioned JustCatch, our, our smaller units, that is effectively 
the great great grandchild on the test plant and it's 90 percent smaller and 90 percent cheaper in terms of a, a cost uh, a capex so that's uh you really have to have both the science and the engineering to get there um but your comments around our offering are uh, spot on we have um uh, modular which is the just catch and you can sell that more like a product than a, than a project and um, we can offer that as part of a service along with some uh, counterparties to cover the transport and storage and i'm sure we'll come on to that a bit later um and of course big catch is the big one it's uh whatever size is needed um that is a less modularized design right now but there is going to be um some work well we are working on that cost position right now mm -hmm. david can you talk about the the sizes of of big catch and just catch and why those are maybe optimal and, and what might be the differences in application between the two Absolutely. So between the two, uh, Just Catch is the modularized solution, uh, comes in sort of small and medium size, and a small one is 40,000 tons per year of CO2, and the medium size is 100,000. Now, the 100,000 is a good match with the smaller end of the, if you like, the medium size emitters that we see on the radar screen. So uh, some of the smaller uh, waste to energy, um, some of the smaller smelters, um, car uh, some of the work with, for instance, uh, engineered charcoal, carbon paper, and so on. Um, you can have more than one, uh, so you can, for instance, look to address 200,000 tons per year by having uh, having more than one. But of course, if you wanted to scale up and have, let's say, five of them, then it makes more sense to go for the large one. And in particular, when you look at most of the plants on the larger end of the scale, cement, blue hydrogen and gas to power, um, and also, also the larger waste to energy as well, those are uh you know also 500,000 a million and certainly for the gas to power up towards 2 million so that's the large end so that's where the big catch comes in typically also as part of a um new built greenfield plant as well so it's not um most of the just catch uh, inquiries we're looking at uh a lot of them tend to be more brownfield bolt-ons you just need space in your parking lots to uh connect it up with the uh with, with the facility so we've talked a little bit about competitive advantage already and one of the things that investors are asking a lot is well, this carbon capture stuff, it looks like other industrial processes. We, we build refineries, we build chemical plants, and there isn't necessarily a, a, a technology advantage that anybody has in doing those things. And this looks a lot like that. So why, why is there really any kind of advantage here? Maybe you could try to set the, set the story straight for us on that and, and maybe rank your, what you view as your competitive advantages and, and help us understand how the, the solvent IP fits into that. Would it, would it be in one of the top one, two or three uh, that you would list off? Absolutely. No, it's a very uh, important uh, question. So, and there really are two parts to it. What, one is how you rank the science and the other one is how you rank uh, the company in terms of being able to actually deliver the projects. And the latter is actually really important when you're looking at chasing real work. Uh, and this is purely speaking from experience. So it doesn't, the, the technology, there are two angles to it. You know, one, one angle you look at, uh, for instance, how much energy does it require, does, does your system need to release the CO2? Because as you probably know, it's a reversible chemical reaction. It picks up CO2 on one side and then you heat it and it rele releases it and you take it off on the other. Um, so partly the system is how efficient is the system? How much energy does it need per cycle to, to uh, pick up and release the, uh, the CO2? Um, second point is the environmental footprint and studying um, uh, the aiming system. You know, uh, the off-the-shelf aiming routes do have a certain risk of, uh, of side products and also leakage into the atmosphere. Um, so the studying how much uh, of a side product formation there is in this reaction and studying how much of the solvent escapes um, is uh, super important. And, and also within that is how robust it is. You know, does it last for 
uh, a week, a month, a half a year, et cetera, and different conditions. Now we know how we rank versus the, the main players in this space because we all use the same test facility in, in Norway. So we have a very good idea that in terms of the HSC footprint, the environmental um, numbers I talked about or topics, um, we are a leader in that, and that's quite clear. Energy efficiency, I will say one or two may be slightly better, but it's not an enormous step change. But the, certainly the environmental footprint is the one we tend to lead on, and that's really where I think, I think is our strongest uh, distinguishing uh, feature. The other part of the competitive advantage become, comes from the engineering side. You know, I mentioned that you know, we're about technology and engineering, and the technology side is, is, is what I mentioned. The engineering side is down to, are you credible? And can you actually deliver what you say? So when you, when you look at, the big projects we chase uh, in the UK, for instance, um, the, the the criteria you get when you go in as part of a consortium is that firstly, are you actually able to do this? Are you, you going to deliver this in three years, like you say? Or is it going to be four and a half? And uh, oh, sorry, we didn't really see this problem coming. And secondly, you say you can capture 95% of the CO2 in the flue gas. Is that actually 95% and can you verify that? Or is that going to be 85 or 70 or something? And then the whole point of CO2 is to improve the environment. And if you take away CO2 and replace it with something else that's a bigger risk or a different risk. Clearly, that has to be very, very well studied. So a big focus on what is the environmental picture you're adding um, by having a CO2 capturing facility rather than simply having the CO2 venting to the atmosphere. Then you have things like lo local content and costs. But I can tell you in the work, the work we secured recently in the UK, environmental footprint, super important part of the discussion. Also, the performance, and particularly with gas to power, huge uh, um, capacity, as I mentioned, 2 million tonnes a year. Also, to be able to capture 95% of that 2 million tonnes and to be able to verify that is, is a very, very important point. So, yeah, there's there lots of parts in this, but it's not, um, it's not just purely the, the science. It's also the engineering credibility of being able to actually de deliver what are effectively big projects as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So the plan is, as I understand it, is to kind of get to 10 million tons of capture per year by 2025. There's a portion of that. I think it's like 500,000 tons that's in backlog right now. And then there's others that are in various stages. And you talked about before, you've got the cement waste energy, gas to power, and blue hydrogen is kind of the, the pillars of your what you're going after. Maybe talk to us about how you get to that that 10 million tons, uh, maybe if there's any way to say, well, this much is going to be cement, that much is going to be waste of energy and, and, you know, how that ranking looks now versus what it might look over the next few years. Yeah. And that's a really good question. I think uh, there's one, one other layer you, um, in that, in that chart we had in our Q4 presentation there, there's 0.5 million tons uh, that's, that's, as you mentioned, fixed, then the 4 million tons in feeds. And that's, half the BP net zero T side and the other half of other stuff we've not disclosed as yet. Then there's also 3 million tons of what were sort of studies and tenders. And these are the ones that are maybe, yeah, because they're not guaranteed to come through as work, but they're the ones that there's more engagement, more discussion around the potential for the projects. And let, to be honest, you know, when, when we do engage in studies and, uh, and tenders, and obviously we do have some selectivity. So when we look at all the projects coming in uh, that, that engage with us, some of them, are very interesting. They're not too far from industrial clusters. They're, they're industries we know very well. Others are just in the wrong place. So if if there's an obvious transport challenge, and sometimes we have to uh, prioritize and think, well, actually, is this going to be realistically a project that we will do in the next two or three years? Or is it going to be something for the second half of this decade? And so we have to sometimes given we're a small company, fast growing, but still small, we have to have some prioritization in there. But in that, in that um, in that conversion funnel, you know, how do we turn, how do we turn those three million tons of tenders and studies and uh, twenty plus of, 
of uh, projects into real work. Um, well, um, time will tell, but I, I think we, we still see a very realistic plan to get to that 10 million tonnes by 2025. Um, it is, that is just Northern Europe, so we were not thinking about any other regions contributing to that. Um, that is, maybe we'll talk about North America a bit later in this, but, uh, but that doesn't, that's not included in that 10 million tonnes. There is always going to be a challenge in that 10 million tonnes because of the storage timing, and ultimately, if the storage timing uh, doesn't deliver, then people don't order the carbon capture. That's a pretty obvious uh, deduction. But looking at how that mix is working out, to get to 10, you need to have a good delivery in the UK because there are some big projects there. There's big gas to power. I mentioned one with BP. There are a number of other ones in the, in the, in the UK where we're pre-qualified and hopefully have some news in the next, um, in the next uh, six, 12 months or so on, on those. But I imagine you'll see gas to power being an important part of that. Uh, waste to energy is important, um, cement's important, and after that, there'll probably be, uh, be a, quite a mixture. Um, I think um, at the moment, you know, we, I don't want to double guess too much on what the, uh, what the precise mix will be, but certainly just given the size of the big contracts, you, know, you can't get to 10 without a big contribution from gas to power and also from the waste to energy side in the UK. One just quick follow-up comment. If you think about, if you asked, asked me that question a year ago or six months ago, what has changed, I think, now? is that we have firstly a lot more waste to energy that's popped up, especially in the UK. And uh, secondly, we've also had a lot of inquiries from other industries. So maybe outside the big four that we talk about. So uh, as I mentioned, pulp and paper, smelting and so on. There are a number of other em uh, industrial emitters that are maybe medium sized, but are very keen to look to a solution to capture their CO2. We've talked about the carbon capture as a service. And, and I think of that 10 million tons, uh, you're targeting something like 10 to 20% of that to be as a service. What's behind that target? How, how did you come up with that? Is there any reason that you'd want to limit your exposure to, to carbon as a service? I'm thinking of, you know, perhaps having a lot of capital tied up in, in those types of projects. Just what are the thoughts around that? Yeah. Now, so the, the capture the service model and um, that 10 to 20% of that 10. So given it's based around just catch 100, that's 10 or 20 projects. They, that, that really reflects what we see uh, in terms of potential incoming work. I would say it's not particularly any limitation. I mean, we want, we're not aiming for a max of 20, and if it's 25, that's fantastic. Um, but it's more just that's what we see on the radar screen, looking at the uh, number of industries out there that could fall into this type of, uh, type, type of model. Um, the, the capital deployment side, um, the, we, always, we rather targeted this to be a capital light structure for us. So the capital deployment, um, as we talked about when we launched this last year, we wanted to have a sale and lease back with a financial partner. So when we turn up with a consortium, it's not only us and someone to cap handle transport and storage, it's also someone to look at the uh, financing as well. So infrastructure fund, maybe if it's an external option or internally, uh, there's a development to, you know, it's not uh, fully finalized yet, but looking at maybe having an ARCA company uh, as a counterparty to help fund this as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, and then uh, what's your targeting there what are the industries that that make the most sense for capture as a service actually it's more a certain size of it, of, of industry rather than a particular end market i mean the uh, as we discussed before the aiming uh, approach is quite broad brush you can handle a lot of different industries from you know a mid single digit co2 up to 25% plus so uh, the issue with the carbon capture as a service i mean we have, we thought about this when we um, in our initial plan back in 2020, but sort of thought, saw this as a cherry on the cake we could look at maybe in the second half of this decade. We accelerated it last year because certainly in the first half of 2021, and to be honest, it continued through, through H2 as well, 
a lot of inquiries from mid-sized uh, emitters across a number of areas, uh, waste to energy, cement and others, um, that just come from companies that do not have a lot of engineering skills under their hood. Maybe they're not too sure about how to, how to chase funding. Is it government? Is it something else? Is it green bonds? Is it asset-based or corporate center? Um, and, uh, and also aren't familiar with process engineering, but they're not familiar with uh, how to work out um, and manage a project for a carbon capture plant. So when we talked about, well, if we, if we did turn up with some um, counterparty and, you know, and offered you a, a, a price per ton basis on a 20 or 25 year contract, would that, would that be helpful? And the overriding answer was yes. Um, now we haven't signed a contract yet, but hopefully that won't be too long before we can talk with a bit more uh, detail around that. And, and that's, kind of leads to the next question that I had. So if I showed up today and said, you know, I want to sign up for capture as a service, you guys have this range of cost or price, I guess it's more of a price because it includes some margin for you all, but sort of 70 to 150 euro per ton of CO2. That's, that's sort of the number that you have out there as a range. Is that the number that like, I could come to you today and tell you, take my carbon away. And that's, that's the range that you'd be quoting me just to make sure we're on the same page. Cause I've heard some other analysis or seen some other analysis where they're doing some funny business with discounting um, for future inflation. And what might be a hundred today is 130 in 2025. That, that, that's not what's going on here, right? Correct. Yeah, this is, this is what it is now. And, I, and this is, um, it is a levelized cost. So in the actual, to get those numbers, it's, it is a discounted um, a calculation over the life of the contracts, but the, the cost level, are where they are now. So this is what we see in our, so those numbers effectively reflect what's on our radar screen. And if you look at the the, the breakdown, you know, if, you, if we actually have updated this since we first published this back in September last year. And if you look at the difference, putting it very simply, the CapEx has gone up, the OPEX has come down a bit, uh, and the, the transport and storage just sort of stay, stays uh, where it is. So net net, there's not been a big change. Now, maybe we can discuss some of the components a bit more detail in, in, in a second, but um, it's a, it's a, it's a real time, uh, measure and hence that update uh, last week. Yeah, and and I want to I want to hear more about that. But so the components, as you mentioned, uh, and there's a there's a great slide in the in in Ocker's investor deck that that has this all broken out. So I'm going to run through it right now. But anybody listening, if you want to go back and look, just pull that slide deck up. It, it's pretty helpful. Um, so there's the, the, there's this capex component that's 30 to 45 euro. I'm assuming that's essentially your equipment, your kit that you offer. There's another. 10 to 45 uh, euro from OPEX. And then the final 35, as you mentioned, is the transport or final 30 to 60, excuse me, is the, the transport and storage. So my understanding is the cost to capture generally depends on the purity of the CO2 stream. So the higher the purity of the CO2, the lower the capture cost. And I think of things like fermentation and gasification at the low end, uh, maybe power generation is in the middle and, and direct air capture is at the very high end. And then the transport and storage is kind of agnostic because it's already CO2 in some sort of liquid form and it doesn't care where it, where it came from. So really the CapEx and the OPEX portions, if they put them together, that's 40 to 90 euro spread. Is that range largely explained by that that purity that I mentioned, or are there other things that you know you would point to that drive the, the difference? Yeah, so um, we, we don't. That doesn't uh, include anything to do with direct air capture on that. So that that's very much off the off the end of our. I mean, that's not something we do. We do look at it, um, a long term view with a binoculars, but it's nothing we're looking at uh, in this calculation. Um, 
the the way you broke it down is a is a pretty sensible um yes the so if you look at what goes into those numbers the capex is as you guessed the key equipment it's also um the the financing the, the financing cost as well so there's a little so given we talk about having this as a finance partner as part of as part of the carbon capture uh, um as a service model part of it does include the finance cost in that um so to see the capex move up and uh, the old version, it was between 20 and 40, and now it's between 30 and 45. It is not, I wouldn't go for a midpoint to midpoint spread. That's not quite right, because there's a bit of a scatter of numbers in that in that range. Um, but something like 10, 15% inflation in pure CapEx um, in the last uh, few months is probably uh, a good, uh, good measure. Now, to your point, earlier question about, you know, future numbers, we hope uh, next time we talk uh, to, to be able to talk maybe in six months or a year's time to show how we can bring that down again. There's still even though we modularize the just catch quite a bit, we do see still some room to bring the cost down further. So we, we hope to be able to offset the pure CapEx side anyway. But the good news in the OPEX side, and as you correctly state, between 10 and, 10 and 45, before it was 25 to 45. So that's come down quite a bit, at least the low end has. And what's really driven that is more around the, the, the way you recycle heat in the system. And this is really classic lessons from learned from learning from doing the actual uh, job in in real life. So, um, talking to customers, see how their systems work, how their how their actual emitting plants work. If you can recycle more heat, because it's you know energy cost is the biggest single chunk of opex. If you can recycle more heat, you can do a lot to bring that opex down. And we really found uh, some very good examples of additional ways to bring that opex down. So really, when you look at um, the what what drives that forty to ninety uh, per ton spread uh, across capex and opex, yeah, some of it is uh, is the CO two concentration, and some of it is also the amount of heat you can recycle, and some of it, which I forgot to mention earlier, with capex is a little bit about what some emitters need a bit of extra equipment if if the if the flue gas if the exhaust gas has a lot of moisture or other pollutants in it you have to take it out first to avoid corrosion risk so sometimes a little bit more front end spend to get the stuff ready to go into the carbon capture plant but effectively it's uh, it is the co2 concentration and it's also the uh, opex the, the heat recycling part mm -hmm. and and from a longer term perspective right so the the I know you've talked about this 50% reduction in CapEx um, that you're targeting, I think by 2025. So we can do the math on what that means for, for these three categories that we've discussed. But as you think about the whole cost, the 70 to 150, where does that go, you know, by 2025 or 2030? What's the what's the target here? That's no, a very interesting topic. Um, so the 50% reduction, that's really targeting the big catch, the, the big units, because very simply, uh, those have not been modularized yet uh, to any great degree. Um, they're still quite bespoke. So the purely the capex phase is quite a bit more per ton for those um, than than it is for the uh, for the just catch. And as I mentioned, just catch is is ninety percent cheaper than it, than effectively its great grandfather plant back in twenty twelve. Um, so we still see some room to reduce the cost for just catch, um, but clearly it's had a lot of the modularization work already. But 10, 15, 20 percent. Um, uh, over time, uh, particularly as we get better at making them, because we hope, given the point of a modular product, we're going to make a lot of them. So assembling, working with the supply chain, there should be ways to optimize that further. The uh, the the big catch, um, the modularization part is going to be a, a big, big step forward. Um, it's often hard to get exact numbers from engineers, uh, as you probably know. But whenever we talk to our colleagues in this team, it, it, looking at big catch, you, if you look at if you were to have and this is a very simple scenario, one that was modularized versus one that wasn't, 
you're talking something like 20, 30% cost saving for the CapEx side just by having it simpler. And partly that is just because you can use cheaper uh, components. Partly also it's because you can de-risk the construction phase because on site you're just effectively bringing in baby Lego chunks to stick together and to, uh, and to hook up. Um, whereas when it's not modularized, it's proper adult level Meccano with nuts and bolts lying around everywhere. So it's much, it's a different, the construction risk is different, which means it's priced differently as well. Dreaming about the uh, carbon capture Lego project that I'm going to get my son for his birthday. Um, <laughs> so I want to switch over to, to blue hydrogen now, because that's a, a bit of a, a new area for you, I guess, with this um, collaboration that you've got with Syntaf, which I want to hear more about. But that that collaboration, um, I think, is targeting 95% capture using autothermal reforming, so ATR. Just to take a step back um, to give, give the listeners a little background on the, all this stuff. So typically, when you're going to make hydrogen from fossil fuels, uh, you're using an SMR process, steam methane reformation. And, and actually, we talk about this in quite a bit of detail in our, in our other podcast with air products, if you want to get into the, the chemistry of it. But basically, SMR is taking fossil fuel and um, doing a process to it to create hydrogen. If you want to capture the uh, CO2 off of that, there's a very pure stream that comes from the chemical process of creating the, the hydrogen and CO2, um, and that's pretty cheap to capture. But then there's this whole other piece of the process that is generating the heat and burning the natural gas where that's just like power gen and it's going to have a higher a higher cost of capture. Then you move over to ATR and, and the whole process uh, of of creating the hydrogen and CO2 is actually where most of the CO2 comes from. And that's a, that's a cheaper form of capture. So where this is all going is if you were to capture, or, or I guess the first question is how much CO2 do you target capturing off of an SMR? And then if you were to capture 95% off of an SMR, how much different costs would that cost be versus capturing 95% off of an ATR? Mm. Um, I think uh, between where the uh, cryogenic technology that we talked about at our, uh, last week um, with the ATR that we're doing with Syntef, it's a little bit immature to talk about exact cost position. But in terms of performance, the uh, as I mentioned, we did have some, we've already done some work to show that it can capture 95% plus, so it clearly works very well. Um, the SMR route, uh, yes, we also have good experience to show that our aiming technology works well with that as well. And we routinely talk about our approach as having uh, 90 to 95% capture uh, as a typical aim. Now you can tune that. I mean, if you want to capture 99, you can, it just costs more energy. So there are, um, it really comes down to a bit of a trade-off between uh, high capture rate and your energy inputs to, uh, to, you know, to get the CO2 out the other, the other end. Um, but, uh, but in terms of working with, with uh, SMRs, yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's not a, given the higher CO2 level in it, it's generally a nicer target than, I mean, for instance, gas to power, which is, you know, is at the other end, more like sort of three, four, 5% CO2. That's obviously where there's a, a technical challenge um, to capture a good level of CO2 uh, consistently. And thankfully, thankfully, we managed it, which is why an important part of our um, story in the UK. But the back to the hydrogen topic. Um, yes, we, we think we should we have good confidence that we can have two uh, complementary technologies here that can handle SMRs and ATRs, and for both, we'll be able to uh, show a good mid-90s capture rate. But as I said it's a little bit too early to talk about costs so far. I want to ask one more on um, just kind of blue hydrogen in general, and, and I'm sure you're well aware of some counterpoints or studies that have been done that say, well, after you include fugitive methane and after you, you know, 
adjust for the CO2 equivalents. Um, all this blue hydrogen stuff is, is really not capturing as much CO2 as we think we are because, you know, there's other methane leakage that's occurring throughout the whole supply chain. What, what's the, what's the thought and what's the possible solution on all that? Mm. No, it's, I mean, we, we read all those too. I mean, the, the, the easy answer is to say, well, really you should ask our customers in this space and see what their pushback is. But to be honest, the easy test from our angle is, are the customers still moving ahead and wanting to engage to discuss blue hydrogen? Uh, yes. Absolutely. Um, so from that point of view, we see a good level of interest from the, from the customer base. Um, we also noted there's been, a, been some supportive commentary from the EU taxonomy discussions around this as well. Um, and um, and yes, I mean, I think the blue hydrogen story overall, um, we're not so worried about the, the methane side, the methane leakage side. I think um, uh, this is a well-discussed point, but uh, some of the studies that, that maybe take historic methane leakage from other industries and other, other uh, projects and look at it in terms of you know, that's not a good comparison with a modern hydrogen plant uh, and the sort of the level of um, process detail you'll see in that. Um, but in terms of the, the blue hydrogen markets, yeah, I mean, it, it clearly there's the question in the future as to what, where, as to when green will be dominant. Um, but we still see a good uh, 10, 20 years, um, or good few decades ahead where there's a very good market for blue hydrogen. Great. Over to the uh, kind of chicken and egg discussion of of takeaway and storage capacity is the company's been pretty consistent discussing that kind of a limiting factor to to FID and to to projects coming into backlog is going to be offtake um, so there's a bunch of of hubs and clusters that are coming together in the north sea maybe you could talk to those and and give us sort of a, an overview of what all those are but also maybe from a generic perspective if a project if a hub project is coming on in say 2025 if you work your way backwards from that start update, um, you know when would you need to have a have start delivering a project? When would you need to be doing a feed? When would you get that award? Set set that timeline up for us if you could. Absolutely. So, other timelines around storage are, are super important because, and I think often they are maybe miss uh, or let's say are underestimated um, or underappreciated by the markets because. If the storage timelines aren't credible and don't have good support, then whatever the carbon price is, people are going to be a little bit reluctant to actually order the plant and make their capital commitment. So to have a good visibility around that, and it's probably one of the most important parts, if not the most important part of the value chain for governments to support, to really uh, to really push that forward. Um, so if you look across Europe, um, and uh, I think if you look at the, the projects that are fairly well not developed, maybe sort of mid-level development um, and, and further forward, there are around 20 in the world and something like 15, 13 or so of those are in Europe. So there's a good um, um, crop of, of these uh, moving forward. Um, the timing wise, the very first one is uh, Northern Lights in Norway in uh, 2024 for their first CO2 storage. Then you have um, a green sand in Denmark and Portos in the Netherlands, also targeting 24, 25. Then you have uh, the UK track one, uh, which is a bit bigger and starting in 2026. Then after that, you have the second phases of um, Northern Lights, um, uh, scaling up green sand, second phases in Netherlands, um, a few other projects elsewhere. And of course, the track two in the UK, which is um, another two or three clusters, um, including the Scottish cluster, which just missed out on the uh, track one decision last year. So overall, uh, there's a good wave of storage coming up between 24, 25 and 26, and then a second wave probably sort of between 28 and 2030. Now, just looking from the European perspective, the first couple of years are not all that big. So there is 
is a certain expectation uh, management around how much is going to go targeting 2024. But there's there's a, a few million tons um, uh, that, that'll be going in uh, in, the, in the first one or two years. That really scales up to sort of 20 or 30 and then 30 or 40 in the years after that. Um, but the real, the larger uh, wave of work really comes targeting that 2026 timeline and then, then the next one for sort of 2028. So in that, um, they're looking, you, know, you can look back at the timelines quite easily. If, you look, if you're wanting to build a big plant, a big plant, a big catch, takes about three years to deliver. So if you're targeting 2026, you will design it now and you will order it probably in uh, 2023. And that's, that's what we're seeing in the UK. So hence we're involved in feed work now. I'm sure there's going to be more coming. And then we will uh, hopefully see some progress towards the real awards in uh, 2023. If you are in Norway, uh, you're targeting 24 and you probably want to make sure that you're already up and running. So um, the, hence the Norsem cement project is already ongoing and we're very busy with that now. Um, it's a real landmark landmark project, as you know. There are a number of other smaller projects in Norway that are also chasing that, that we hope to have some news on the next uh, one or two years, but we're targeting that 2024 timeline. So again, a just catch delivery is 15 to 18 months. So if you're modular, year and a half, if you're big, three years, and you work back from the uh, from the storage timelines. Mm -hmm. no, that's a great overview. So maybe that's Europe. And uh, you've discussed and been pretty open about an intention to enter. I, and I can't, is it North America or the US? Or It's North America. North America. Okay. So um, you've got this intention to enter there uh, with some kind of partner. I guess the first question is, why, why with a partner? Why not just on your own and and what are the limiting factors you know what do you what's the checklist um that you're looking to fill out before you're before you're able to make that decision well so the number of questions here there's um so it is north america it's a very good clarification to make and um uh, someone did challenge us recently and said well if you say north america you mean canada it's like well not necessarily we just mean both because both have different uh types of very substantial opportunities to get involved in this in this industry um, I think right now uh, there are there are perhaps things we won't do, so it's easy to go through that list. So it's unlikely we're going to get involved in capturing CO2 from coal coal-fired power. It's unlikely we're going to get involved in working with oil sands. I think if we work with EOR, we'll have to have a very particular view in terms of the timeline for uh, the EOR piece becoming permanent storage. Um, but that said, there's a lot to do in the US uh, and 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 Canada, as you as you know very well. Um, and I think for us. The, the, the aim is really to find um, which routes make the most sense. And there are a number of parts of the value chain we can look at. You know, do we go upstream and partner with someone who's more uh, an EMP guy with access to storage? Or do we look at uh, someone who owns pipelines and maybe can be the in-between guy? Uh, do we work with someone more who's in the supply chain, someone who works with power generation, for instance? Um, or, or do we just go straight and work with a, with a larger oil company? So that there are a number of, number of options out there. At the moment, I think um, we always tell, us, tell ourselves that the danger is you could spend some years working out the best route and then miss out on some opportunities. So I think we're rather keen to, to, to take some steps in the next one, two years and to, really, uh, uh, and to really get some boots on the ground and start to see some work coming through. Um, but I think uh, my, my suspicion is there are a number of answers, all of which are, are, are going to be favourable for us to, to partner. Um, I just think like, as we discussed in terms of, you know, some of the pushback from customers, if we can get out there and in a few years be part of a real development, I think that's going to help the whole industry to see some of the plants up and running to show they do work uh, and, and at a good cost as well. 
that's all the questions. I just have one more, and this is uh, it is something that we're asking everybody to do uh, to to make a prediction. This is, is something. It's it's three to five years out uh, or more, and and we're not looking to hold you accountable for it. It's more about providing something that's thought provoking and, and maybe off the radar for investors. So, with that, what's your project? What's your uh, prediction, mm. David? Yeah, well, I think um, on a on a three to five year view, maybe I think you've got to go over like 2030 and beyond, really. Because um, there's, there's clearly, I think for us, uh, long term success is firstly building a more diversified technology portfolio, because there's going to be other other routes out there. There's a, there's a lot of competing technology already um, early stage. So I think partnering with building a portfolio to handle um, different industries is going to be very important. But more to the point, I think uh, looking at life beyond industrial carbon capture is going to be a very interesting target so um moving into direct air capture thinking about carbon removals um, um the making those into formal um certificates to to uh, to formalize carbon removals carbon, uh, carbon offsets and so on that the development of that market is really interesting um and i think uh, as a carbon removal company <laughs> looking at the truck behind me in the, in the picture um as a carbon removal company uh, we've got to think about uh, how our world will change and i think um, having the, the direct route and also being able to play into the actual carbon market itself could well be the more exciting uh, long-term opportunity, uh, as well as optimizing how we work with industrial emitters. Do you mean stuff like BEX, um, as you're thinking? Yeah, about yeah, absolutely. That, you know? Yeah, th thinking. Um, so we're going to to. Uh, uh, I mean, as a company, we, we aim to be um, uh, carbon negative by 2030, but that's just us. Um, but it, in terms of working with carbon negative solutions, um, that could be uh, could be quite an exciting uh, business opportunity long term. Super. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate it and, and look forward to, to catching up again soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.